Hello everyone and welcome to the podcast of English composer Andrew Downs. I am Andrew's younger daughter Paula and on today's show I am delighted to be talking to conductor and violinist Simon Chalk who was a student at Royal Birmingham Conservatoire in the late 80s early 90s when I was around 10 and I saw Simon performing in various different works by my dad. It is just wonderful to have the chance to hear Simon's perspective on those magical concerts I went along to in my childhood and to get the chance to talk to one of those students I so admired. Simon Chalk was born and educated in a small mining village in South Wales and began playing the violin at age 11. He studied conducting and violin at the Royal Birmingham Conservatoire and he spent his early career as a teacher, violinist and chamber musician with the Almira String Quartet. He has since developed a flourishing and versatile career as a conductor, musical director, leader, director and educator and has gradually relinquished the bow in favour of the baton. He is based in the West Midlands in the UK and has performed with and conducted orchestras and ensembles both throughout the UK and internationally. Simon was appointed as Chief Conductor of the Slovak Sinfonieta, State Chamber Orchestra of Slovakia, in September 2015 and has completed his three-year tenure with them. He now continues his relationship with the orchestra as Guest Principal Conductor. In January 2018, he was honoured by the Government of Slovakia through the award of a Diploma of Appreciation in recognition of extraordinary merits in the development of friendly relationships with the Slovak Republic. July 2018 saw Simon taking part in the Bucharest International Conducting Competition when he was awarded the special prize voted for by the members of the Bucharest Symphony Orchestra, which saw him returning to conduct the orchestra during the 2018-19 season. He became artistic director of the Southern Symphonia in 2016, whilst continuing to undertake guest conductor appearances with internationally renowned ensembles, perhaps most notably the St. Petersburg Symphony Orchestra. Equally at home with both classical and crossover repertoire, he became Russell Watson's musical director for much of Russell's UK tour in 2018. Prior to this, Simon has spent a significant amount of time touring the globe as conductor with the internationally renowned classical crossover group Il Devo. His relationship with Il Devo has taken him on three world tours across six continents, performing with a plethora of international orchestras along the way and conducting in many of the world's iconic concert halls and arenas. For more information, do visit simonchalk.co.uk. Before I welcome Simon, I am going to play Movement 3 from Andrew Down's Centenary Fire Dances a work that was performed to about 20,000 people in Cannon Hill Park, Birmingham, to celebrate the centenary of the city of Birmingham in 1989. This was a truly amazing event. I can't tell you how exciting it was. The piece was written to go with a gigantic fireworks display, and Simon Chalk was leading the orchestra. In this movement, which is Movement 3, Irish Dance, he is playing a violin solo and actually duetting with his now wife, Andrea, on the piccolo.
was the Birmingham Conservatoire Symphony Orchestra conducted by Jonathan Del Mar. You can hear all five movements of Centenary Fire Dances at andrewdowns.com where you can also buy the CD, purchase and download WAV and MP3 files and sheet music. You can also read about the premiere on the blog of Andrew Downs' wife and publisher, Cynthia Downs. And now to our guest, Simon Chalk. Hi Simon, thank you so much for coming on our podcast today. My pleasure, it's lovely to talk to you. You too. Can you tell us how did you get into music in the first place and why did you choose to play the violin? Why did I choose to play the violin? God, that's a brilliant question. When I was a small boy, there were two things that I had an obsession with, so my parents told me, well my mother specifically, and that was listening to orchestras on TV. This is when I was a small boy, pram-sized, or watching horses. Horse racing was the other thing. So you could plunk me in a pram in front of the TV and if there was an orchestra on it or horse racing you could leave me there for hours right. thankfully i can't stand horse racing i've never never actually even been so the violin kind of started to become something of an obsession but i didn't play until i was 11 which is a bit strange the piano is where i started but without any lessons my grandmother had a pianola mm. which i was fascinated with for anybody who's listening who doesn't know what that is it's a fantastic old school instrument which played by itself automatically via a set of bellows so you push these bellows a piece of parchment rolled around on the inside of the instrument with holes in it and when there were holes it pushed the keys down on the piano and then played itself it was very very clever many of the roles had to be recorded by a musician first they weren't made by a machine they were made by a machine that was actually a piano cut holes into the roles wow and so a lot of the roles were played by the composers themselves so if you picked a piece by Rachmaninoff, quite often it was Rachmaninoff who played the music. That's amazing. Or Percy Granger. Percy Granger had an absolute fascination with this machine and wrote his music and then played it in himself. It was very cool. So yes, this fabulous machine was part of my life from being about three years old. Oh, wow. And so regularly I would go to my granny's and just head to the front room and plonk away. My parents were very much working class, so there was no room for lessons in terms of money. Mm. So by the time I was 11, then I went to senior school. Missed out on getting a violin at junior school because I was away for two weeks with tonsillitis. Oh, what a shame. So they gave the bloody violin to my brother, who's younger. No. Exactly. (laughs) And he had no interest at all, but I couldn't get one. So (gasps) I got to senior school, aged 11. They suggested, look, anybody who wants to play a musical instrument, go to the music room at this time on day one and see if you could get involved. So I went and got in big trouble because I was supposed to go to a first year meeting and they thought I'd absconded from school and I'd disappeared and all sorts. But I, (laughs) I got the violin, which is most important. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and within about four or five weeks, I knew that's what I wanted to do. I don't know, didn't know what I was going to do with it, but I knew that it was going to be something I really wanted to do. Wow, so you didn't start learning till you were 11? No. Wow. No. And then by the time I was 16, leaving school, because I went to a sixth form college, my school didn't have a sixth form, so it was a tertiary college I went to. One of Wales is first, because I was born and brought up in South Wales. So I do my A-levels there, A-level music art and drama is what I did at that stage. But when I got there, I was only grade five. So at age 16, I was still only grade five. Oh my gosh. So you made amazing progress in a very short space of time. Like an absolute train from 16 through to, I, I didn't come to Birmingham until I was, I was just 19 when I came because I, my birthday's late in the year. So I ended up as one of the oldest in my year for a change because I'd been the youngest in my year all through my school year. So I delayed things by a year, but got to grade eight. 
in Gosh. about two and a half years from a very poor grade five start because I hadn't realised that the lovely teacher I had at school, lovely though she may have been, was a little ineffectual in terms of her ability to teach. Right. So, yeah, I had some very bad habits that I needed to fix. I see. So very lucky in that case. That's amazing. So you had a really good teacher in sixth form college then? Well, I certainly had somebody who was able to give me a slap on the backside and make me work. That was the main thing. He was, Yeah, he was a much better teacher. But by that stage, the bit was really between my teeth. Mm. And then when I came to audition for Birmingham. I was only grade seven. I hadn't done grade eight. And they said, well, you're going to have to do grade eight and get a distinction. <laughs> I said, yeah, no problem. And off I trotted and duly did my grade eight and got a distinction. Oh, amazing. Yeah, I was very lucky. Those days, I had no fascination with scales whatsoever. I, I absolutely loathed them. So I was in a position where my scales for my grade eight, I got 10, I think, <laughs> which was abysmal. So you must have done amazingly in the rest of it then. Yeah, I, I got two 29s and a 30 for the pieces, I think. Or something like that. It was just mad. Gosh. You know, just crazy stuff. And you so, must have uh, been good at sight reading as well. Sight reading was one of my things that I really liked to do. Yeah, I think 20 out of 21, something like this, just to get me over the line. Wow. Yeah, I was lucky. I was lucky. It all was good too. Yeah. In fact, by the time I got to Birmingham, it became one of my specialisms that I chose for my undergraduate. So all helped, of course, by your dad. <laughs> He's the man. So can you tell us about your time at the Conservatoire? Did you enjoy it? I've got to be honest. Mostly, I loved it. And then during my time there, when Andrew became very much part of my life as a student, that's when things really started to motor because I had another tutor. Andrew was my personal tutor eventually, but he was somebody who I gravitated mm -hmm. towards from an early time. He was a fascinating man in every respect because he was the first composer that I'd really ever come across. This is my dad. Yeah, exactly. Growing up in South Wales, composers, you, you met them on the odd occasion when you were doing a youth orchestra piece but they seemed so aloof and distant and, mm. and your father was one of those guys that was just he was an open book you could go talk to him about anything you wanted really and so when my sadly my the teacher that I had her husband died whilst I was one of her students so she stepped back from doing the personal tutor type work for the college because uh, at the conservatoire each student gets a one-to-one -one with a member of staff who looks after them in terms of how are you doing you know how's life is everything running okay how are your lessons going I'm hearing good things from your teacher I'm hearing bad things from your teacher you need to pick up, you know, those kind of things. So I transferred to Andrew in my second year, I think it was, or maybe even into my third year. And it was pivotal in that sense, because during your third year of study, it was my second year, I think, during my third year of study, he'd encouraged me to take composition for a little while, which is great. And I really loved that. It's a good time. Right. Eventually it had to go because I didn't have enough time to hold down all of the options. Yeah. Conducting was an option. Oral training was an option. And my violin playing was just going through the roof. I was involved in everything mm -hmm. that the college had to offer. I had a great String quartet at the time. The Almira. Yeah, indeed. The Almira. Good Lord. That's a long time. I remember them. So we had a great string quartet. I was leading both the symphony and the chamber orchestras. Mm. I was playing contemporary music with groups and was just doing anything that was thrown at me. And that was at your dad's suggestion. He said, Look, you, you need to get involved in anything and everything you can. Oh, really? Oh, God, yeah. He was brilliant. <laughs> Always hugely encouraging. And we played a lot of his music. I mean, during my time as the leader of the orchestra, we gave a world premiere of his Centenary Fire Dances, which we recorded. That was a gig and a half because mm -hmm. my wife was playing the piccolo at the same oh, time yes. in the orchestra so she and I had this little duet thing going on which is <laughs> Cool. Were you together at the time? Oh, we were together by then, yeah, I think. I think we probably, <laughs> it's a long time ago now. We've been married nearly, we're in our 27th year this year. So we've been together for more than oh, 30 Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations. Well, yeah, just for surviving. 
but no, it was a great time. And as I said, he was, he still is a big influence because I think back to a lot of what he said. I was fascinated by Dad's voice also because uh, you know, <laughs> one doesn't expect a composer to sing at all, really. You expect them to beaver away in their study with a piano or a, yeah, singing their scores, admittedly, but not in a professional kind of way where your voice is trained and all of this kind of stuff. He was the first person who had ever shown me how to sing a score that I'd written in four, oh, five wow. parts. You could just sing the whole lot. And I still do a little of that now. Oh, interesting. I think it's one of the skills that you have to keep trucking with, otherwise yeah. you lose it. So mm. whilst I was a student there, his dad was head of orchestral studies. Oh, yes. Your grandfather. Yeah. I got on very well with Frank because I knew how to behave. <laughs> I think I had the right attitude, is what your grandfather would say, right from the offset. You know, rehearsals were important. Being prepared was important. Turning up on time was important. Right. And I'll never forget him firing a French horn player. Really? In a rehearsal. Yeah, literally this guy turned up late one too many times. And Frank just, he just fired him on the spot. Oh, gosh. Made the number two, the number one, and then dragged in some student from the foyer to join the performance. Oh, I didn't know. I didn't know about that. Oh, the thing is, it was that kind of thing. He wanted people to know that the profession of being a musician was a serious one. Mm. And we all know that when we get out there, it is a little bit different to that. But if you are going to play at the very top level of being a musician, you better be on the ball. Because mm. if you're not, you've literally got no chance. Now, that is still true today. So if you yeah. come out and you want to play with one of our crown jewels, as it were, you want to be in the LSO or, or the Philharmonia or the Philharmonic or, you know, CBSO, Halle. If you want to play for one of those orchestras, you have to be right on the front edge of everything and be prepared. Yeah. And that's I think, where many musicians falter because they can do all the other stuff. They can play, they can perform, they can sight read, but it's just all the ancillary stuff about being a good, solid professional musician that they miss. And your grandfather was a master at encouraging people to look at how to behave. Oh, that's really interesting. I didn't know. Well, he also had a glorious background as a player. Yeah. He'd done all the stuff. Mm. And then in later life thought, you know what, what I need to do probably, I mean, I never spoke to him about this because one didn't, but I would assume that he thought, well, my role now is to add value to young musicians coming forwards. I've had my time. I've done all that there is to do. I've lived through the Bolts and the Sergeants and the Furtwanglers and all of those major conductors. I should bring that knowledge to some young people. And so yeah. that's what he did. So we knew that he was, well, those of us that are now playing our trade within the profession, I think, would certainly cite him as an influence. Oh, wow. If they didn't, then they should. <laughs> you know, they should. Oh, that's lovely. Because once you start then opening up the roots with Andrew's compositional studies, once you start looking at the composers that he studied with and those composers that they knew, I've got a bit of a fascination with Benjamin Britten at the moment. Oh, really? I've just read Paul Kildea's book, which is quite a tome. It's a big, thick thing, but it's well worth reading. It gives a really good insight into this thing, into his life and his music and his relationships. And by those, I mean his professional relationships with his publishers and with the people that he wrote for, peers, obviously, Rostropovich, Fish Diskal, uh, Julian Bream, these kind of phenomenal musicians that we all kind of hold up as great models of music making. Oh, that sounds really interesting. But as I said, started, sparked by having your father as my tutor. I feel so lucky to have had that because without it I don't think not that my previous tutor was poor in any way she was a wind player very solid good musician mm. but Andrew was something totally different something I could never come across before <laughs> my violin teacher was the same he had a right. similar feel who was that? James Coles was my violin teacher oh okay so again and a bit of an under the radar thing Jim had been a student at the Royal Academy of Music mm. and he was the best violinist of his time right he played the Walton Violin Concerto in the graduation concert of his graduation year he was the soloist oh, wow. he got married on the saturday following 
doing the Friday concerts and started at the Royal Opera House on Monday morning because he'd already got a job. Oh, wow. Absolute brilliance. Oh, my gosh. And then he developed on from there and his playing career came, culminated in him being the co-leader of the Bourne, what was the Bournemouth Sinfonietta, which was this wonderful chamber orchestra based in the south of England. And then during his life, the music became so intense that he was away all the time. And I think his wife said, look, you know, you've got to rein this in a little bit. So then he moved to Cheltenham and took a teaching job at the conservatoire which meant that he was touring less and doing a lot less things. But again, he wasn't in the CBSO or anything. He wasn't one of these glamour teachers that comes waltzing in from wherever, having done a recital, you know, the Wigmore Hall, all of those kind Mm -hmm. of, he'd done all that. Yeah. In my first term of having lessons with him, people would say, who are you studying with? Because Felix Koch was then the leader of the CBSO. Mm -hmm. He was teaching at the Conservatoire. The chap who was the principal second violin with the big beard, what was his name? Anyway, he was teaching. So people wanted to study with all these guys. There were a couple of other big names that were on the books. And there was Jim just under the radar. Mm-hmm. And so people would say, well, who, who's that? I said, well, he's a very, very good teacher in Ireland. I'm very lucky to have him. And then towards the end of that first term, he gave a concert with two recorder players. Alan, uh, the chap who was head of recorder at the time, was playing, and one of his best students. And they played the Bach, the Brandenburg, that has the violin and uh, the recorders. Mm-hmm. And you've never heard the violin play so fast in your life. Jim <laughs> was just, he was staggering. And oh, people wow. <laughs> That wide-eyed. So I'm sat there going, that's my teacher, you know, that's my teacher there. So I Aww. felt like I'd lucked out, really. Oh, that's lovely. So can you tell us about your experience of singing in the Marshes of Glynn? Oh, my Lord, the Marshes of Glynn. <laughs> Obviously, I've still got a copy of it. It's on a record. Every time the Marshes of Glynn comes out, I can see the front cover of the record because it was on a record, folks. Um, you know, and for those young people who are only just discovering records, that's how we used to make music back in the day. <laughs> These big shiny black discs of loveliness. Mm-hmm. And so there's a picture of us all on the front cover. Damien Cranmer, who is conducting with his back to the picture. John yeah. Mitchinson on the stage. Full compliment, orchestral compliment from the second years and above. And then a choir of predominantly first year students and other polytechnic waifs and strays that were brought in. <laughs> <laughs> oh, obviously the vocal department as well. They got a bit involved. Yeah. Oh, and the pianists. Yeah, they were all involved in it. <laughs> uh, just to kind of sing this this wonderful Ye Marshes. It's how it begins. That's the very first line. I can still remember. Marshes of Glynn. And we had Royal. It was almost by Royal Ascent because it was the opening gig, I seem to remember. Was it the opening gig for the hall? Yes, for the opening of the Adrian Bolt Hall. Adrian Bolt Hall. Yes, that stalwart of the British conducting fraternity, Adrian Bolt. Were you singing or playing the violin? Singing. Oh, right. Oh, God, yes. I was singing my heart out. My little Dutch heart. <laughs> the Duchess of Gloucester was the lady who was there to open the hall. Right. She was the one. But it, yeah, it was fab. As I said, marshalled by Damien Cranmer, who was then the director of studies. He was the second in command. He kind of pretty much ran the place, just like a lot of institutions that have figureheads who are good at talking to the press and good at managing the outward face of a college. You always need somebody underneath that who can make mm. the place tick. And, and, and Damien was one of those. Right. Stickler for detail, quite formal kind of guy, very upright, straight-faced guy. His conducting mm. was, looking back on it now, because I hadn't experienced a huge amount of conductors at the time, his conducting was very clear and functional. No frills and nothing fancy about his conducting. It was very straightforward in that respect. Right. We had other conductors who came in later in my time who, who were much more flamboyant. There was no flamboyance with Damien. He's a proper... I think Adrian Bolt would have been proud, put it that way. It's nice, square conducting. Very typically, it sounds really derogatory, it's not meant to be, but typically English school of conducting at the time. Because Adrian Bolt used very small gestures, didn't he? He did. Very huge baton. 
with very <laughs> tiny gestures. So he had this very long baton. And people used to say that it felt like he was conducting with his sleeve slightly open and that he, that he was conducting behind it so you couldn't really see. And you could look <laughs> at the end of the baton and it would move like this tiny amount. And yet it was a great, huge, long two foot of baton that hardly moved. How strange. <laughs> yeah, very, very odd. Yeah. But you know, it stems almost from a military band background, I suppose, and people not seeing things as terribly flamboyant. We're still in the age of conductors like Richard Strauss. He was still kind of on the scene, certainly would have been on the scene when Bolt started his career. Notorious for making very few gestures. And if you listen to him, oh, you see the footage of him conducting his own music, it's very grainy and stuff, but there's literally all manner of huge sounds on the stage going on. And Strauss is just like little tiny movement. Oh, interesting. So not, not getting involved. You know, not, mm. no, no real sense of passion. No Dudamel, that's for sure. <laughs> but the marshes, yeah. And John Mitchinson was just, I'd never heard anybody sing like that in my entire life up to that point. Yeah, he was amazing. Well, up close, that is. I'd heard great performances because I suppose we talked about Britain earlier. My obsession with him began when I was about 17. Mm. I went to a performance of Peter Grimes at the Opera House. Oh, right. Back in those days, my A-level music teacher was a tenor himself who ran one of Wales's premier male voice choirs, the Risker male voice choir. And they competed and did incredibly well under Martin's tutelage. But this guy, Martin Hodgson, who was head of music at Cross Keys College where I was at six months, at least once a year, we would go to a matinee performance at the Royal Opera House. They had these things on a Wednesday afternoon, specifically oh, right. school kids. Oh, nice. So we paid something like a tenner, I want to say. And that included our bus trip. I'm going oh, wow. to the mid-80s now. The first opera I ever saw was Bohem. So Neil was singing Rodolfo. I can't remember who Mimi was. Then we saw In Succession, Marriage of Figaro, with a very early kind of foray into the world of opera from Mr. Bryn Turville. Mm. But Leporello was being sung by Geraint Evans which is just staggering, really. And he was another hero of mine, a Welsh baritone, one of the most famous singers of his day. And I got my O-level certificates from Sir Geraint. And I nearly died because he was a big hero of mine. What do you mean? He presented, he presented them to us, yeah. He was the guest at our school nice. to present all of the O-level certificates. I couldn't believe my luck. Yeah. He had a house in Aberiron on the Welsh coast. And my parents, used to, we used to go there for holidays. We'd go for a weekend or that kind of thing, touring caravan type stuff. And uh, we'd quite often go into the harbour where we knew his house was, just in case he should come out. I could get the chance to talk to him. Really? It was yeah, very bizarre. And did you I, ever? No. <laughs> I was the stalker from South Wales who never got to speak. He was tremendous. And so we saw that. It was Don Giovanni. It wasn't Figaro. Thomas Allen was singing Don. Leporello was being sung by Gary Tevins. And it was just wickedly good. Because wow. Thomas Allen at his time, he was right in the mix of being the wonderkind, as it were. Yeah. Then I saw John Vickers in two shows. Samson and Delilah, Sanson. Then eventually this phenomenal production of Peter Grimes, which I believe Britain wasn't so keen on John Vickers as Grimes because of what he brought to the character. But I thought he was amazing. Absolutely amazing. And there's a scene when they're out on a boat and yet another young boy is going to disappear over the side. Mm. And it was raining on the stage and I'd never seen anything like it. And it wasn't just raining, it was a storm. Wow. So the storm scene. And John Vickers was getting soaked. Literally, he was wearing a sou'wester and oils, oilskin stuff, and he was getting proper soaking wet. I've never seen anything really? like that. Really? Oh yeah, it was a staggering thing for a young musician to see. And I didn't think you could do that on the stage. In films, yes, but live on a stage, good lord, no. So Mitchinson, I would put in the same field as Vickers 
was, you could put him in that company and he would have been great. Mm. He was a big fella too. I seem to remember his face seemed to be almost twice the size of anybody else's around <laughs> him. He was a big fella, but boy, could he sing and sing very, very well, you know. Yes. He was a real favourite at the conservatory. And I think your dad, even if he hadn't been there as a tutor, John, I think your dad would have requested him. I think he would have been on because I think this was the kind of vocal sound that your dad really likes. He likes the passionate, on the edge, you know, no holds barred kind of sound. Mm. And John gave that in spades a massive massive voice yeah. never any question that you needed to worry about balance there was never a moment when you wouldn't have been able to hear John Mitchinson sing <laughs> a, a full orchestra and a choir I just love the tone of his voice it's just beautiful spot tone on. oh god yeah but I mean when you were within striking distance of it it was the depth of the tone of his voice as well. How can I describe it? The darkest of dark chocolate, I would say, <laughs> but with a clarity that only comes from glass. There was a perfect edge to his voice all the way around. Yeah, I think that's a great description. With a depth in the middle, a phenomenal guy. I did the Dream of Gerontius with him as well, and that oh, right. was how I didn't just break down into tears <laughs> in the show, I don't know, because he, oh, amazing, just amazing. Oh, I love that piece. <laughs> yeah, well, it is, but you know, I think your dad's music, that Marshes of Glynn is in that same ballpark, and I think he would have been influenced by certain by what Elgar achieved in that piece. Yeah, my dad loves Elgar. There's much for me to dislike about Elgar. There's some of his music I cannot abide. <laughs> you know, when you can write such brilliant music as you can in Garontius, why would you write music that's just not as good? <laughs> I don't get it. The good stuff is incredibly good. Yeah. And the banal stuff is incredibly banal. I'm going to be bold <laughs> and say things like The Apostles. And the thing is, it comes from following my time at the Conservatoire. I spent quite a few years ploughing the weekend choral gigs scene. I see. And I still love it. I still do some of those things now. I've just done one in Cheltenham and I've got one coming up in Stratford next month with a choir there who are punching above their weight and pushing very hard because they're doing St John, mm. which isn't going to be easy for them, but they'll give it a damn good go. Mm. And that's what I love about music making that we have in the UK is that we have this tradition of people coming together over one or two terms of a year learning a piece of music and then having a real go at it I think it's, yeah. it's great yeah. and I think that this is part of that tradition this is where your dad will have got the inspiration I think for writing the marshes yeah. but yes cool piece yeah oh, it's cool. wonderful surely it's time for a revival of that piece isn't it? I think so yes definitely here is movement two of the marshes of Glynn by Andrew Downs a setting of the poem by Sidney Lanier, performed by tenor John Mitchinson with the Birmingham Conservatoire Choir and Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Damien Cramner.
You can hear the whole work at andrewdowns.com where you can also buy the CD, the LP, purchase and download the WAV and MP3 files and sheet music. And again, you can read about the premiere on the blog of Andrew Downs' wife and publisher, Cynthia Downs. Can you tell us about your experience of leading the orchestra for the fireworks fantasia for the centenary of Birmingham? Well, that was something else, I've got to say. I mean, the Masters of Glynn was an experience because I've always just said, but when it came round to doing this piece, obviously it was the centenary of Birmingham. Great commission for Dad to get the music. I mean, there wasn't going to be anybody else. I mean, he was head of composition at the college in the city where they were going to have this thing happen. So who else are you going to ask? (laughs) And I don't think any of us really knew of the orchestra that was playing in it quite what it was all about. Somebody said, well, it's for the centenary of Birmingham. And we all, you know, being people from the age range of about 19, 20 years old through to 22, 23, centenary of Birmingham didn't really mean a great deal to any of us because most of the people who were students at the college weren't even from Birmingham. <laughs> so it was just like, oh, well, it's just another kind of thing. I think it was only when we really got to Cannon Hill Park on the day of the show that we realised just how massive this thing was going to be. Yeah. So the stage, I think it might have been one of my first performances on an outdoor stage. I think it probably was, I'm going to say that it was. Right. And it was a stage that was obviously that was put by the city, but it was properly pucker. It was enormous. You know, you get a full symphony orchestra on and your dad didn't shy away from his percussion section. It was probably <laughs> the largest percussion section outside of, I don't know, Palmini Burana or the Rite of Spring or any of those kind of monster pieces that have, you know, four or five percussionists on. Mm. I think he must have brought every single bloody thing that we had from the Conservatoire <laughs> to the Cannon Hill Park. We had timps, we had malleted instruments, he had all manner of drums, because obviously it was reflecting the city, so yeah. there are movements that reflect the Irish thing, there was a Baran in that one movement, the movement I get a fantastically cheeky solo in, <laughs> which I think, if I remember rightly, I stuffed up on the day. I think I came in early or late, but it didn't matter because it was in four bar phrases so I, I don't remember that <laughs> well the joy was when we came off I said to your dad I said I'm, like, I'm so sorry and he said well I hadn't really noticed he said I was really I'm so enjoying the, the thing so much he said I didn't really notice but we recorded it as well as you know and I managed to get that right but as I said what we weren't expecting because there were other pieces on the program no idea what those pieces were couldn't tell you there were other pieces because obviously setting finance is what is it about 25 minutes long isn't it maybe 30 minutes at the outside yeah. five movements of, it was never going to fill a hole even a half so I can't remember what else we did but it's insignificant because the only piece that mattered on that day was that one <laughs> so we did our rehearsal they set the thing up you'll know Cannon Hill Park but if others don't there's a former boating lake I don't know if there was any boats on it these days but there used to be kind of peddlers and all that kind of stuff on it probably shut down for health and safety reasons beyond it there's a very green open parkland space and so they put the stage the other side of the lake so we played across a lake mm. because that was the place to put it so we were the same side as the Mac buildings up then the lake and then the audience came into the park land itself so we were thinking you know, it'll attract a few thousand people oh my lord when we walked onto the stage the number of people that were there were just I've never seen so many people and it wasn't until later in my life when I did a lot more of those kind of outdoor spectaculars that I got to see a crowd of that size I don't know what the figures were but they were in the tens of thousands yeah. of people yeah. that were in the audience I want to say in excess of 30, 40,000 people. It was huge. And maybe more than that. And what we hadn't known, well, we should have known really, because it was in the title, Centenary Fire Dances. There were fireworks that went off and they were spectacular, so I'm told. We didn't see very many of them, but... I suppose you didn't rehearse with the fireworks, did you? No, so no, no, no. Was that no, a bit no. disconcerting? <laughs> bit of a shock, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because the explosions were like, oh my God. And if you were not involved in playing at the time, if you were counting bars, the rest of the these blessed things are going off. You know, we're all used to them now when we do these outdoor things, and you know, those explosions sounding like cannons going off. Because obviously, when fireworks go off, they leave a cloud of smoke. Yeah. And then that wafted across this lake. The scene itself and the picture itself was quite, you know, it was a wonderful event. Yeah, it was spectacular. Really. 
Yeah, really. And exactly what the city of Birmingham needed at the time. Mm. I mean, this was before we had Symphony Hall. Because mm. Symphony Hall didn't arrive until 91, I think. Symphony Hall, 92, something like that. So this was a time when it was all happening. Mm. And they were making suggestions that culturally Birmingham was going to go in a certain direction. And your dad was able to capture an entire musical life of a city in one 25-minute piece. Yeah. All those influences, that the, you know, the Bangra that we had going on, the Irish thing, the English music tradition that he was bringing from it himself, but all wrapped up in this potpourri of loveliness, really. Mm. He's always been good at writing the big things. But the thing with Dad is it's his versatility that's always got me. The fact that he can write such small pieces and make them sound so grand mm. and make then grand big pieces sound so small. He's always had that ability. My desire has always been that whilst he's had the success as a composer that he, looking back on it, he'll probably be thankful for. There should have been so much more. Yeah. For me, this should have been. Well, there's still time. Yeah. I mean, he's a young, he's a young fella. <laughs> I mean, he's only just hit his middle age. Good God, you know. If people can call me a young fella at 53, then he's still a young fella. But you know, and is hopefully in a purple patch now where he can write what he really wants. Yeah. You know, I'm so pleased with the Czech Philharmonic stuff. Yes, yes. Because as you know, I've had a couple of posts now. In, I don't like the word Eastern Europe because it isn't. It's Central Europe. I think whenever I hear the words Eastern Europe, the people tag on the things. It's usually in a derogatory way rather than in a positive way. It's very much Central. Europe and it's a wonderful wonderful place to be and to be making music it has traditions that some countries in the world can only dream of when it comes to music and it's passion for music and it's love of music and it's dedication to the music of its own self is something to be cherished and championed I think mm. and if they've taken your dad to heart I think that's a brilliant brilliant thing yeah. and to be encouraged to keep that going yeah because they, they do like it it seems, you know, I've watched the documentary yeah. of the making of the symphonies and you can tell the musicians like it, the conductor mm. is very enthusiastic about it and I think that's great. Yeah, oh, wonderful. Very pleased to hear yeah. that. Yeah, we were delighted as well. Of course. Here is movement five of Centenary Fire Dances, Fire Ride.
So, moving on to the quartets, how did you form the Almira Quartet? How? Oh, Lord, that's a good question. I formed the quartet because I fell out of another one. I didn't fall out with the other one. I just fell out of it by accident. And it was an accident indeed that took me away from it. I was playing in a quartet called the Isis Quartet. And at the time, it was all going along very, very nicely. We were starting to make inroads in giving recitals and we were going to start competing because the college hadn't had a quartet in a number of years. The previous ones to us who were making any kind of inroads were the Exton String Quartet, which had four really fine musicians, well, five actually really fine musicians in it. But they were giving recitals when I first arrived at the college. They were on their way out of the college by that stage. They were senior musicians. So the first quartet recital I went to when I arrived was one that they gave. There were some really great recitals at that time. So we were the first quartet that were what I would call an official, you know, this is what we were looking to try and do, quartet, ISIS. At the time, it was myself. We went through a couple of different stages. Initially, Simon Jackson's younger brother, Julian, was in the quartet. But Julian, his heart wasn't really in it. So he was playing first, I was playing second. We had Mike, who was in the Exton Quartet, was our viola player. And Farfar Jin, Chinese cellist, who was in my year at college. Then Julian stepped down. So I stepped up to play first. We brought in Leon G, who was a slightly younger student, a really good musician. And then Mike eventually stepped away and Gary Deutsch came to join the quartet. And then it was all trucking along very nicely. And my sport in those days was racing mountain bikes. Not the ideal thing for a violinist. Really? <laughs> yeah. And I'd been on a big long training session, 10 week training session, when I'd covered about 2000 miles oh, wow. in 10 weeks. And then I crashed mm. very badly in a forest just north of Birmingham, at Cannock Chase in fact. Oh, and no. I broke my shoulder. That's terrible. Half. I know, it's stupid really. And we were supposed to head off on a course somewhere. And there was no way I could even pick my violin up, leave it alone, go and play on this course. Oh, we, no. we had a recital to do as well. Again, couldn't do it. So I stepped aside for a month for none other than Mr. Michael Seal, who took my seat. All right. He was a couple of years below. In fact, I think he was in Leon's year. And he was a fabulous violinist. He was easily the best violinist of his year. So they pulled Mike into this thing. And within a month, Mike was going to be the new leader of the quartet. And I just left because it seemed logical to do so. They needed to go on. And we had a very nice, amicable discussion about it. I was disappointed, naturally. But there was nothing I could do. I mean, my arm was in... I shredded it, basically. But I was playing within a month. The shoulder was healing quite well. So I had my fiddle under my chin within a month. And I was back on my bike after six weeks. Because if I hadn't got back on it, then I was never going to. That would have been stupid because my cycling was my transport to get back and forth to college. I I was biking everywhere. So the racing started to play second fiddle then to everything else because my good lady, Andrea, said, look, you've got to stop with this because this is too dangerous for you. I mean, this is your career going forward, so stop. So I did for a little while. I did a few more races, but I just didn't have the confidence. But it was the best thing. It was the worst thing at the time because obviously my quartet was going well and I wanted it to happen. But it meant then that I had to really think about what I wanted to do. And so I handpicked the people I wanted to be in a quartet with. And I started another one. And there was this really dedicated young German cellist, Sean Gilder, who I had wanted to work with for a time. So I asked him if he'd be interested, and he said yeah. And then he and I basically pulled this thing together, and we were together for eight years. He was the cellist before he left the ensemble. But then we had two others. We went through five viola players in our time. Oh, wow. Couldn't seem to hold down a viola player. (laughs) We got there in the end, but the quartet then became ensemble in residence to the composition department only. Oh, right. Because we struggled to engage with the head of strings at the time. Our head of strings was Jackie Ross. And I think it was partly because we were on our way out of the institution. You know, I was a postgrad by this stage, or at least heading towards the latter stages of my college career. And I think it wasn't on her radar to have a resident quartet of students. I mean, all she needed to do was support it. Mm. But your father was instrumental in supporting. Oh, that's lovely. Well, I think 
think he and Jackie weren't without their particular issues because obviously your dad was always on the side of young composers getting their music played and you know writing quartets and trios and orchestral pieces yeah. whilst Jackie was very much trying to produce string players for the profession mm. so as you know as a student yourself in a music scenario what often happens is that instrumentalists get locked down you must just practice your scales and do your technical stuff yeah and you're not allowed to play in ensembles and do all this kind of thing and I think that your father's always advocated well it's the playing and the doing that is where you learn mm. you do all your technical studies by yourself but if there's no outlet for it there's really no point you're also making your contacts as well exactly right it's just how you engage with other musicians it's how you learn mm. you cannot learn in a bubble and then expect to shoehorn that into a scenario I mean it's a very old way of looking at things and also Jackie she was American so she'd come from that particular tradition and I think if I may be so bold I think the American system has always had to play catch up they've caught up very well now through the likes of Curtis Oberlin Juilliard these kind of institutions that have brought them on but they've had no real tradition they've had to import all of their musical tradition from Europe right. and so what they were able to do was import a kind of very strict regime of you learn your instrument first and then make it fit afterwards and we've never done it that way we've always been the minute you can play anything and you can scrape a few notes we stick you in a band mm. we stick you in an orchestra we stick you in a wind band or a brass band or a choir right out you go let's yeah. get on let's do <laughs> let's make some bloody music rather than doing it in isolation yeah. and I think there is a certain European tradition of the locking yourself away musician until you are ready to come out into the big wide world for the flower to open as it were and then you become part of something but to our minds I think in the British system we are thinking that perhaps you leave that too late if you start engaging with young musicians of your own background you'll develop much quicker and I think that's absolutely right and true so that was the frisson that existed between the two departments your father was head of department Jackie was head of her department and never the twain shall meet and I think at one point Miss Ross might have even said I don't want these boys coaching anybody in terms of chamber music or anything so it was a bit of a yeah oh, wow. but I was on your dad's side so that didn't really matter because I knew I had him in my corner and that was what was more important I think also that there was a competitive element to it that in a very short space of time instead of being students of the conservatoire we were going to be musical competitors out in the big wide world and I think that Jackie wasn't able to separate the two things out here she was a lady of certain standing and, and experience I mean what was the threat from a violinist of my standing and my experience I didn't see it I found it very difficult to work that out but it's something that we if we are insecure in our music making or in ourselves sometimes we can find ourselves feeling a little as though people are going to compete well I suppose they should in a way because otherwise music doesn't progress and we don't get onto the next generation experience is what's important but then in terms of the quartet as I said again dad's influence gave us that opportunity we became quartet in association to the composition department because we couldn't have residence because Jackie poured the cold water on that one and then right. what we would do is we ran a competition each year so students would write music for us they could bring their sketches and music and bring them to us once a week we used to come mm -hmm. in on a Wednesday or whatever it was and then composers it was a facility we'd be there if they didn't come we'd just rehearse something and if they did they'd come composers I can remember Liz Johnson if you mm. come across Liz Liz was yeah. a winner of one of our competitions there were a couple of others Liz is probably the most high profile one but composition tended to attract more mature students as well some people mm. who were in their 40s some in their 50s so each year we ran a competition the prize wasn't monetary because college didn't have a huge great amount of money but what mm. we offered were three performances of that work in concerts that we would find so a couple of times we performed in the English Music Festival which was in Stratford mm. so just getting those people's music out there because what you want is a composer money's great it might pay the rent for a week mm. but it isn't getting your music out there you're never going to be much of a force in music unless people could hear your works remember this is in a time before we had any of the social media stuff there was no YouTube then there was no uh, yeah. Twitter Facebook none of this existed you couldn't put your music out as a young cellist did in America on Twitter and make a million dollars from your album that you put out mm. because you release it in a certain way that certainly wasn't possible at the time you would have to be picked up by the likes of the B or a recording company you'd have to get something in the proms the 
avenues were tiny. Yeah, different world. Yes, I mean, commercial composing was still there. You could write jingles and you could write music for TV. But again, just like it is now, getting into that, it wasn't an open door that was available. Mm. You had to know the right people. And in terms of composition in this country, it still exists now, I believe, that there are a couple of people who sit right at the very top of the chain who make all of the decisions and decide who gets what, where, when, and how. Mm. And that I cannot abide. I really can't abide it because I think that isn't right. And one person's great composer is another person's idiot. <laughs> Yeah. You know, who decides? Who says that people are great composers or not? Yeah. You played some string quartets by my dad, didn't you? I did. Yeah, we did. We played, how many are there? Three? Four? Three. Well, the first two we played, and then the third one was dedicated to us. Oh, what? The Indian one? Yes. Yes, I love that one. The one that explores the fourth dimension, as it were, in terms of musical mm. things. I seem to recall the rhythms that he chose created other rhythms that one hears when they're being played. I see. So orally, you end up in a different kind of place. We played the first couple. We put one of them into our repertoire, and he really liked the way we played it. Mm. So wrote the third and dedicated it to us, which was a really um, god I mean, what a, what a thing to have in your life. So we, we played, uh, I think we'd given recital and put the music in because we just thought it was a cool idea. And he really liked mm. it. And to be quite frank, the way I play as a violinist has always been, I think, the way that your dad would want to hear the notes come out. I can't tell you what it is. And it sounds really unhumbled, if even that's a word. But there's a sound that I play that he really mm. likes, I think. And that's what drove it as much oh, as Oh, yeah, anything. he's always loved your play. Yeah, there's something about the way that I created a sound. If somebody was to say to me, I sound like, quote, unquote, an English violinist, I would go and throw myself <laughs> off the first bridge. Because it's not that. There's a passion about how I play. And he uses that word so mm. often. I, I think it'll probably be the last one that he'll say. Passion, that would be the last word. <laughs> You're probably on right. The, on any subject. <laughs> and the other thing I could say is that he was the first composer that I had worked with and alongside that broke with tradition and wrote on his music in English what he wanted. Mm. Softer, louder, more expansive more passionate not a passionata or forte or all these kind of bugger the italian stuff he just wrote down this is what i want and it was clear that was novel right. at the time it wasn't something that one saw regularly i think dad was one of the first certainly the first item to write stuff in english <laughs> and we were all like why don't more composers do this what a brilliant idea yeah it was humbling beyond belief to have something written for you it was the first piece i'd ever had written for me and obviously i'm sharing it with my colleagues but it was a very personal thing at the time and i spent a long time with that music under my chin because it was important to me that i did the very 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 best that i could do i was playing for him i was playing his music but i was playing for him i felt that that weight of responsibility and it came back in other pieces that we played we gave the world premiere of Paris third quartet which was quite staggering really but without having had that experience with your father I don't think I would have been able to take that on in the way that oh, we right. did because you know there's a huge responsibility there I mean Paris a national mm -hmm. treasure in terms of the legacy of the one piece <laughs> yes. that he's left to everybody the whole thing was compounded by the fact that we chose to give the first performance live on the radio wow. and then it got even more risky because the first performance was in the church on Paris estate well his father's estate in a church that was built by his father in Heinem just outside Gloucester for the Three Choirs Festival and it was one of the first live concerts that Classic FM did they couldn't do it live because they didn't have any broadcasting facilities then they could record the concert as live and then put it out as live concert from London but they had to take the tapes that they made back to London in order to do it so we did this live concert and then had to wait a day before hearing it oh, and, wow. oh, <laughs> oh it was a scary gig that yeah. uh, here is a snippet of a performance by the Almira Quartet of Andrew Downs String Quartet No. 3.
listen to the whole of that work at andrewdowns.com where you can also purchase and download the sheet music. Cynthia Downs has also written a blog post about the premiere and subsequent performances of this piece. So you were also playing in the recording of the concerto for guitar, electric bass, guitar and strings. I was. That was a stunning thing. By that stage then, I was a proper bona fide, I'm making a living as a musician, musician. <laughs> Andrew asked me to come back and play. I seem to remember sitting next to Colin mm-hmm. Twig. He was leading, I was sitting number two. We had Simon Dinnigan and we had Fred Baker. Yeah. Fred Baker was playing bass guitar. Fred's a great guy. Absolutely diamond geezer, as it were. <laughs> and we had a lot of fun doing that. Did you? dad conduct yes. yes we recorded in the old recital hall at the conservatoire yeah it was good it was a great day and again it just shows the fearlessness of your dad's compositional style in the fact that somebody comes up with the idea of having an electric bass guitar alongside a classical guitar and he goes yeah i'll write something for that we'll add some strings in do a bit of this and you know he's yeah. fearless in that yeah respect. it's such a cool piece i love it what we can always say about your father's music is that there is no norm yeah there's nothing you can say well this is what he does or that is what he does mm. yes there's a signature for sure and there is a voice that he has. We talk about composers' voices, the voice of Shostakovich, the voice of Beethoven. And your father certainly has that distinctive voice. If you're playing me something, I can usually tell. Mm. And that's always a good sign, yeah, I think. Yeah. But the eclectic nature of what he writes and who he writes for and the spread of instruments, there are not too many like <laughs> No, I'll agree. <laughs> and I think in that respect, he and Britain, there's a lot to be said for that correlation. That was a fine thing. And Fred was just thrilled to be playing a concerto mm. on an electric bass guitar. Again, a man full of great experiences, great stories it was a great vibe in that room there was some really cool people on that disc it was a small string ensemble I want to say there were maybe four or five firsts four seconds three or four violas two cellos and only one bass and then the two boys obviously soloists and we did it all in one day we got it all down in day it's pretty good well it's only because it's expensive as you know (laughs) (laughs) to record anything is expensive yeah absolutely oh it sounds fun that does here is movement two of concerto for guitar bass guitar and string orchestra
You can hear the whole of that concerto at andrewdowns.com.
When I was growing up at Youth Orchestra Wise, we came across a lot of William Mathias's music. Being Welsh, one always wants to support Welsh composers where possible. And I think that there is possibly a rich vein within the youth orchestra market that jazz music would work very well because it's immediate. Mm. It's challenging, for sure. It's harmonious and it's melodic, but it still pushes people in different directions. Playably challenging. Challengingly playable. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So what have you got coming up? I've just finished a busy period. I was in Russia and Slovakia just before Christmas, in St. Petersburg and in Zilina, which is in North Slovakia. Former chief conductor of the State Chamber Orchestra there. I'm now one of their permanent guest conductors. We have a new director for the orchestra, so we are now planning the next season. I will be there in October with a project that I'm taking some students from Cardiff, a school there, to sit side by side with my orchestra and have a tour at the same time. Oh, wow. That's with the help of both the Slovak Honorary Consul to Wales and the Slovak Ambassador in London, mm-hmm. which is great. Yeah. And then I'll be there in December. I'm back with the St. Petersburg Symphony over Christmas. Three concerts with them, two Christmas programmes and one, which is a programme that revolves around dance and how dance has influenced us in music and how it's helped us progress through the centuries from being just a small interlude in opera to give everybody a break for a sandwich and a glass of beer or whatever it was, right the way through to the ballets of the 20th century, which changed the shape of music forever, really, in so many ways. But also how dance music has influenced our popular music in our lives. So we'll start off with Ramo Luli, and we will end up with some music from Saturday Night Fever. Oh, cool. Yeah, we're going to do a piece called A Fifth of Beethoven, which is very cool. So we'll finish with that, and then there'll be a medley of disco hits beyond that. Mm. Because the orchestra, for all that the kind of Motown stuff, and the disco factory that was the 70s in both the UK and America, America especially, orchestras were very much part of that disco sound. So I want to reflect that. There's a fantastic Russian arranger who will hopefully put all that together for us. Uh, and then in between times, I've just started a burgeoning relationship with Millfield down in, in Somerset. Famed for its sport, they produced a number of Olympians, but their music department's very, very fine. So I'll be conducting their concerto finals this year. And they right. have enough young people. I think we've got 14 individuals who are playing movements from concertos in this oh, final wow. in one evening. So it's going to be a busy evening. <laughs> Yes. Busy couple of days. And then on top of that, then I've got my orchestra here in the UK. I'm the artistic director and the conductor of the Southern Sinfonia, oh, which lovely. has been in existence now for, oh, getting off for 40 years. Mm. It started off as a semi-professional band back in the late 70s, early 80s, and then was taken over by a lovely lady called Kay Lawrence and her husband, because that's her maiden name. Her married name is Lady Kay Norrington. So Roger Norrington was the first proper conductor of the orchestra and the music director. And this was around about the time that he started his London classical players and that first recording he made of the Beethoven symphonies which went stratospheric and launched his international career but just before this point he took on this orchestra called Southern Symphonia so it has a hugely important historical element to it tradition yeah we play for lots of choral societies in and around the south of England we have a residency currently at Queen's School in Taunton and uh, mm-hmm. my desire is to open up the southwest for people to have more music happening in their lives of the kind that they really want to hear we'll be engaging with the Arts Council to see if they can help us deliver some concerts there as I said of music that's still wanting to be heard there's been a survey recently for the southwest of England Somerset, Devon, Cornwall it's the last bastion really in this country of people who want what we would call traditional classical concerts a nice overture or some incidental music to start with a concerto with a soloist you may have heard of and then a nice rousing symphony in the second half they still want those concerts they haven't had the traditions that we've had in some of our cities where we've gone through all of that and now we're looking at film nights or the games nights that are very popular they haven't gone through all the phases yet down in the southwest because sadly it's been neglected I see so we'll see how we go oh good luck well yeah good luck is probably the <laughs> exactly what we do need the two questions we always ask our guests why is music education important oh good lord how long have you got <laughs> um 
Music education, to add the word important to it is yes, but more importantly than that, it's vital. Without music education, we have nothing. I don't know whether any of your previous guests have ever quoted Churchill, but Churchill was asked once about culture. Some journalist cornered him and said, Mr. Churchill, why are you spending money on concerts and theatre and performances for people? He said, when there's a war on, shouldn't we pushing this money into the war effort, making planes, tanks, guns, armies, all that kind of stuff. Apparently Churchill turned to him and he said, my dear chap, if we don't have culture, then what the hell are we fighting for? Mm -hmm. We're fighting here to preserve our culture. And I think we're in that situation now. I know it seems a little bit dramatic possibly to be Churchillian on this, but music education in the whole of the UK is dying as we watch it. And it's on our watch at the moment that it's failing. There are some amazingly talented teachers out there working all the hours they can to try and keep this thing happening. Mm -hmm. But because we've got a certain amount of apathy within our schools, because they've got so much to do, and so many, many, many things that come in a priority before music. But we all know that the skills that we learn from being musicians, whether we go on to be musicians or not, are so important in our life skills and in our lives going forwards. And if we have no culture, then we turn into a society of non-thinkers, of people who don't care. Mm. And so important doesn't really cover it. It's vital mm. that we have this system. We now have a national programme for music education in England. There isn't one in Wales. There's talk of instigating one. I'm reading a huge document at the moment, 96 pages of feasibility study on this thing. But because we're all so disjointed, there needs to be a national plan for music education. How are yeah. we going to deliver? What is it we're delivering? We are so focused in our education system on outcomes and sometimes outcomes are just being just being in a room full of people who are playing music just being in a room full of people who are painting pictures just being in a room where you are throwing pots on a wheel is enough yeah i totally agree with that it's enough it's about the doing yeah. it's yeah. about the stopping having your life stop for a moment and i always talk about this in music because music is one of those things live performance happens right here right now it's never going to be the same ever again mm. even if you get the same players playing the same music at the same time It'll be on a different day. It'll be in a different atmosphere. The weather maybe. Everything is going to be different. Mm. And that's because it happens in a moment of time. You have to be in it. I've said many times that whilst I don't avoid recordings, I don't chase them. It's not something that I'm bothered about leaving a legacy on disc or on any of these kind of things. I'm not bothered. I would much rather people jump in the car, take a train, come to a concert. Even if it's not one of mine, I don't care. Go out and go to a concert. Good or bad, visceral or stately, it doesn't really matter. As long as you get out there, you, you have an experience and are moved in some way, even if you didn't enjoy it. And why is music good for us? Why is music good for us? Another fabulously good question. Because it makes us stop just for a moment in time. As I said, come to a live concert. I've often said to people, nobody in their right mind would suggest that if you've only got one pot of money and you're running a local authority or a government or whatever it is, that looking after elderly people, providing for a health service, having services in your locality, you wouldn't put any of those to one side in order to support music, art or culture because you can't. The basis of your life and the quality of your life, your health and your well-being have to come first. Maslow is a philosopher and there's a particular triangle that he says at the basic level we need shelter we need food we need air to breathe those kind yeah. of things and then as it builds up what we would call the frou-frou comes a little higher up the triangle if you have a problem with your heart or some other organ in your body i can't help you i'm not a surgeon but once a surgeon has worked his magic and has fixed your heart what then now what do we need well what we need now is we need something that makes you thankful for having had that heart operation. And the only things that do that are art and culture, and especially music. So what I can do is if you give me two hours of your time and buy a ticket to one of my gigs, I can make you forget about all the problems in your life for just for two hours. I can make them all go away. 
And now, suddenly, now music is important. Now I can hang some of my budget on that music, and that's why I can justify why culture is important and why music is important. Music punctuates your life all the way through. All of the important things in your life will have music attached to them. The birth of your children, first dance, first kiss, first wedding, assuming that you only get married once. Times when you were on holiday, a particular tune, certain pieces of music that make you think about a product, perhaps, if it's been attached to it on TV. It will be there when you're born, and it will be there when you die, because it's very much part of life. What we have to imagine, to feel the importance of what music is just imagine that there isn't any watch a film particularly films that are tense drama horror watch those without the sound they're not anywhere near as scary well those are wonderful answers to those two questions thanks so much and thank you so much for coming on our podcast it's wonderful to talk to you not at all you too i have really enjoyed it and to go over my reminiscences of your dad and i can't stress enough how big an influence he was certainly in my life he's right up there with all of the wonderful people that i've met and has a very special place very special place Oh, that's lovely.